If you'll join me in Romans chapter 1, Romans 1, we continue in our journey through Paul's letter to the Romans. This morning we will be looking at verses 21 through 23. You can find that on page 939 in the Blue ESV Bible. The title of our sermon this morning is Darkened Hearts, and our keywords for our worshipers in training are honor, wise, and fools. Now, Eric Pianca, he's a professor at the University of Texas in Austin, and his research specialty focuses on empirical and theoretical components of natural history, systematics, community, and landscape ecology. I know we're all very interested in that. (laughs) Pianca's current work focuses on lizard communities in Australia. He's very well known as an ecologist all around the world. He often speaks at conferences He's been widely published in the academic world. In 2006, he was the Texas Distinguished Scientist. Now, being an ecologist, you might assume that Professor Pianca has some very strong views that pertain to the planet and questions involving the ecology of the world, populations and and sustainability and preservation, all of these kinds of things. In fact, this is what he believes. He said in a lecture to the Texas Academy of Science that the earth as we know it will not survive without drastic measures. And he asserted that the only feasible solution, the only solution to saving the earth is to reduce the human population to 10% of its present number. Let me say that in another way. He believes we should eliminate, not replace, but eliminate 90% of the human population. In his lecture, Pianca provided various scenarios that could all work to bring this about, to eliminate this vast number of people, but he settled on his favorite option, which he said was the Ebola virus. After praising the Ebola virus for his efficiency at, at killing people, he looked at the audience very seriously and he said, we've got airborne 90% mortality in humans. Killing humans. Think about that. He said it with glee. At the heart of his claim is that in order for the earth to survive, we must recognize that a global population of over 7 billion people is just too many. He said, we've grown fat apathetic and miserable, all while leaving the planet parched. And so the solution was a 90% reduction in humans. Lives, he said, that are turning the planet into fat human biomass disease. And disease will control the scourge of humanity. We're looking forward to a huge collapse. Now, hopefully you hear that and you hear the musings of a crazy person. But the difference between Pianca and many of the people that live and work all around us is that he is simply saying the quiet part out loud. In fact, after Pianca gave his initial lecture, he was invited to do this elsewhere, and he has gained a growing support base of people that began advocating for the saving of the world 
by killing off the humans as rapidly as possible. So there are at least two things that we can think about with Pianca's thinking. First, we have a man who is highly educated, who is highly respected. He can almost certainly tell you more about most, than most people can about plant life and animal life and ecological balance and pH levels and how things are affected by gravity and weather and on and on and on. I am thankful for God's kind providence in allowing all kinds of people to learn all kinds of things and to develop interests and dedicate themselves to research and writing and publishing to help us learn more about this world all around us that God has created. It is a good thing. But what we see so often And Professor Pianca is just one example of many that I could give, is that it is possible to be very, very, very smart, but to be an absolute fool. Intelligence and wisdom are not the same thing. Now, also, I want to point out his primary concern. It's always interesting to me that people who advocate for things like Darwin's idea of the survival of the fittest, of the strongest surviving, are also people who seem far more concerned about plants and animals and air and water than they care about human beings. But I thought that was the aim. I thought that was what we were supposed to acknowledge and be content with, that the strongest, the most powerful among us would rise to the top and everything else would eventually die off. It's just nature, so what's the big deal? And yet, men like Pianca think we're better off saving the earth than we are preserving human life and providing mankind with the benefits of the earth and its bounty. They care more about the planet than they care about the people on the planet. And Pianca makes very clear that he's just as happy to see all of the people go away. I would assume, however, that he doesn't want to be included in the 90%. Just a hunch. Now, ideas like this are patently ridiculous, but they shouldn't surprise us, should they? The world is filled with smart fools who spout off all kinds of nonsensical ideas about all kinds of nonsensical things. But remember what the Proverbs teach us. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, of wisdom. Those who have suppressed the truth of God, the truth of God's Word, the truth of God that is abundantly clear to them, we saw in the Scriptures last week, will always find ridiculous, nonsensical things to say and to believe. I am sure that Professor Pianca is a whole lot smarter than I am, but I am also 100% certain that he is a foolish man who despises true wisdom. The Bible provides an abundance of statements like this, reminding us over and over and over again that the only source of true wisdom is the Lord Himself. And the result of not seeking the wisdom of God is that we show ourselves to be fools and we become idolaters. So this morning, as we continue to look at Paul's letter in chapter 1, 
in verses 21 through 23, we pick up from where we left off in his argument last week. Remember, in verses 18 through 21, Paul reveals to us that the wrath of God is coming against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, and our hearts are naturally inclined towards scamming ourselves and trying to scam others when it comes to the truth that has been revealed to all of us. The truth is abundantly clear. It is revealed to us by God in nature itself, and yet we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. The divine attributes of God's power and creativity and sovereignty are all there for all of us to see, and yet in our natural hearts, in the wickedness of our own hearts apart from God, we suppress that truth and we seek to go our own way. And so we continue looking at this same argument this morning as Paul continues. But for the sake of context, let's begin reading in verse 18 and pick up from there. Verse 18 of chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Now, if you see me swatting at my face this morning, I'm surrounded by gnats for some reason. I'm going to take dominion over them every opportunity I have. So, Paul is continuing his argument about man's natural instinct, apart from Christ, to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Even though the truth of God has been revealed in creation, in all that has been made, leaving all of us without excuse on the day of judgment. And Paul begins, verse 20, pressing further into this argument. And he goes, and then he goes on saying, as as he has said, they are without excuse, but then he goes on in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor God. They did not give thanks to God. They know God's existence, They see the work of God all around them. It is abundantly clear to all of mankind that God is at work, that God is providing, that God is sustaining all of creation all around us, and yet man in his sinfulness neither acknowledges God's existence and power nor gives thanks to Him for all that He is and all that He does. This is the greatest of sins, to not glorify God is the greatest of sins. What is our purpose? What is our chief end? What is our great 
meaning in life, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So what is our greatest sin? To not acknowledge God as God, but to go our own way. The consequences of not acknowledging God, the consequences of not glorifying God are grave. And so Paul is going to show us at least four things that happen when we fail to honor and give thanks to God. And so the first thing we see is that when we fail to honor God, our thinking becomes empty. You see this in verse 21. They became futile in their thinking. In other words, their minds, their thoughts were empty and vain and useless. One of the greatest blessings of God is that He gave us minds to develop and to learn and to grow and to be educated and to think and to be creative and to imagine. It's from our minds that the wonderful gifts of God that are produced through man originate. Our art, our music, our poetry, our literature, our sports and recreation new food and and drink and the beautiful ways they're prepared and and played it. Think of all of the things that we have and how creative man has had to be in order to create them. Have Have you ever wondered about something as simple as a cup of coffee? Someone had to come to the conclusion that they would pick a small red berry the tree, and they would take the green bean outside of the inside of that berry, and then they would roast it just long enough so that it didn't burn, and then they would grind it, and then they would run hot water through it so that the elixir from heaven could fall into the cup, and we would have something wonderful to drink. Think of all of that. This is something that naturally occurs, a gift from God. And man has used his imagination and his creativity given to us by God in order to do that. And just think of all of the other things that God has created through his people and through the people of the world. Think of all of our advances. Even in the last 10 to 20 years, the advances in in technology and science and, and medicine I have a friend, one of, our, one of our neighbors, he just had two heart attacks in two days and finally went to the hospital. And he showed me his scar after he got his surgery. And his scar was a little quarter-inch dash on his wrist that you could hardly see where they used a robot to go inside of his body into his heart and do surgery. You would never know unless He showed it to you. It is incredible what God has given us the ability to understand and develop. But more important than all of these things, God has given us minds that are capable of reasoning and creating and developing and problem solving and analyzing and speculating and pondering and and meditating so that we might use our minds to know and to glorify God and to think about God and to pray to God and to praise God, to read the Word of God and to devise things in this world that will glorify God. Do you remember what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4? 
Remember, Nebuchadnezzar came and he looked out onto Babylon and he said, Is this not great Babylon which I have built with my mighty power? This was Nebuchadnezzar's thought. This was his sinful assumption, and God was so displeased with Nebuchadnezzar's unwillingness to acknowledge the work and the power and the provision of God that the Bible tells us he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar You don't want to fulfill your calling, your purpose, your design for my honor to glorify me as a human being created in my image? That's fine. I will make you to be like one of the animals instead. So then what happened? And this is the key point. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. He looked up to God. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. So notice what happens. Nebuchadnezzar did not recognize God as God. He did not give thanks to God and all of God's work. And so he was brought to the very end of himself that he might be forced to look upwards. And it was only then that he looked to God and his reason was restored. His mind was restored. Why? Because our minds, our hearts, our thinking, our imaginations are made for God first and foremost. And what does the text say Nebuchadnezzar did as soon as his reason returned? It says he blessed and praised and glorified the one who lives forever. So you see, you can be a world-famous ecologist, You can be the most revered military strategist. You can be the CEO of the best company in the world. You can be the richest woman on the planet. You can have all the power that brings presidents and kings and princes to your doorstep. But in the end, if you refuse to know God and love God and treasure and honor God as He is, none of these things in this world hold any ultimate purpose. Everything you do with your mind, minus God, is futile and empty and vain. Remember, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, 20, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. Bill Gates, one of the richest men alive, the founder of Microsoft, the creator of one of the first computer systems ever, once said, Just in allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on Sunday morning. Now, I would make a comment about how that has affected his product because Windows is pretty much garbage, but Steve Jobs was nowhere close to any godly man in any respect either. But that's just the point that Paul is making here, isn't it? These brilliant men, they're brilliant men. They can do things that most of us could never even think to do, 
And God has given them that gift. God has given them that ability. God has given them that understanding. And yet their thinking in their amazing minds has proven to be futile because they failed to acknowledge God. And in the end, no one will stand before God on the day of judgment and say, I wish I was as smart as Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. No. The only thing you will want to say on the day of judgment is, for my pardon, this I see. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing can for sin atone, not for good that I have done. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Now by this I'll overcome. Now by this I'll reach my home. Glory, glory, this I sing. All my praises for this I bring. Nothing, nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, our minds matter to God, and we can't be flippant about it. This this doesn't mean that we shouldn't put our minds to creating and developing and designing and thinking and analyzing new things, better things, more useful things. We should, and as Christians, we should be better at doing that than anyone else because we as Christians acknowledge that not only that we have insight and understanding, but we have insight and understanding that has been given to us by our Creator, and so we can give thanks to Him and acknowledge Him, and use our developments, and our designs, and our plans, and our creativity for God's glory, and for the building of the church among the nations. Think about what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. He said, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The Apostle Paul says here that our job in this battle is to destroy strongholds. You know, you, do you know what a stronghold is? It's, it's, Paul here is talking about pretensions. He's talking about arguments that are set up against the knowledge of God. This is a mental battle. This is an intellectual battle. He says, destroy these strongholds in your mind. Their, their worldviews, ultimately, is what he's talking about. Things like atheism and agnosticism and Darwinism and secularism. Any kind of stronghold that people set up against the knowledge of God. And so what are we to do instead? He says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take every thought captive. Bring every thought into submission. Make every thought obedient to Christ. And when we fail to honor God in this way, our thinking becomes empty. Second thing Paul shows us, when we fail to honor God, our hearts are darkened. Look again, the end of verse 21, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, this is significant because heart, when used in the Bible, is a comprehensive term, and it talks about all of man's faculties. So, not only does their mind, their thinking, become futile and worthless, but the moral judgment is darkened as well. How is it that an ecologist can conclude that 90% of the human population needs to be eliminated? Well, In the same way that a tyrannical maniac concludes that the Holocaust is justified, 
In the same way that our nation can legally support over 60 million abortions since 1973. In the same way that terrorists can take down buildings with airplanes with thousands of people inside. In the same way that a man can go into a church and start shooting people as they worship God. In the same way that you and I can have all kinds of angry, lustful, idolatrous, covetous thoughts and desires in our own hearts. Because only the glory of God can give light to our sinful hearts. You and I have the capacity for monstrous evil. And if you think otherwise, you do not understand the reality of the human heart and our depravity. We tend to think of ourselves, we all want to think of ourselves as good people, as people who would never do anything too terrible, too sinful, too awful. We see school shootings and terrorist bombings and genocide and on and on and on, and we ask, how could somebody ever do that? I would never do that. But you would. You could. Were it not for God's restraining hand, were it not for God mercifully keeping you from acting out the murderous desires of your heart, you would do it. Speaking of smart fools, Frederick Nietzsche once wrote, I have often laughed at the weaklings who thought themselves good because they had no claws. You know what? He was right. Oftentimes, people mistake their weakness with unwillingness. But given the right amount of power and influence and the hand of God's restraint lifted from us, we all have the very same capacity as Stalin or Pol Pot or Mao or Lenin in our hearts. Any one of us could become the next Bernie Madoff or Jeffrey Epstein or Charlie Manson. Don't mistake your lack of claws for your lack of evil intention apart from Christ. Do you see how our depravity, do you see how our darkened hearts make so abundantly clear our absolute need for the Lord Jesus Christ? So doctrinally, let's be clear here. Total depravity is not the same thing as utter depravity. Utter depravity would mean that we always sin to the greatest extent possible in everything that we do. And thank God we are not as wicked as we could be. Because God's law is on our consciences. And even for the man who does not acknowledge God or worship God, it still holds him back from the most violent of actions. But listen, this is not a high bar that humanity is clearing, is it? Oh, well, we're not as bad as we could be, so maybe things are all right. Ultimately, the fact that we are totally depraved still means that we are very bad off because our standing in the world means that we are at enmity with God. Because sin taints everything we do and everything we are. We have fallen short of the glory of God, and on our own we cannot merit eternal life. We are cut off from the Lord. We cannot save ourselves because we have darkened hearts. Think of what happens. We fail to honor God. We suppress the truth of God. We fail to glorify and acknowledge God. And we have no heart for the Lord Jesus Christ. So what happens? Well, the void must be filled somehow. 
If Christ does not fill my heart, something else will. Think of playing in the beach sand, and you, you dig a hole as the tide goes out. You can dig and dig and dig as deep as you want to dig. But if you do not fill that hole with something else, as soon as that tide comes back in, the hole will fill with water and eventually it will all go back to sand. And so it is with our hearts. In our own efforts, we can try to dispel the darkness. We can try and offload evil. We can try to throw off our sinfulness. But if we don't replace it with light, it will only be filled with darkness once again. And the problem is, We try to do this in our own self-will, our own self-effort to replace the darkness, but we cannot do it because only Christ can serve to produce spiritual light within us and through us. There's no light-producing element in the heart. All light that comes into the heart has to come from outside of us, and that light is the glory of God. Well, how does the light of God's glory enter into our sinful hearts? Think of everything we know to be true from the Scripture. Jesus is the light of the world because Jesus is the glory as the only begotten from the Father. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul writes, God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you see, the only escape from a darkened heart, because of our failure to honor God and to embrace God as the only true light of the world, is Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be surprised. Brothers and sisters, we should not be surprised when we see evil people doing evil things. We should be surprised that we don't see it happen more often, and we should thank God that He sustains as things are and withholds the greatest evils that could be done even from our very own hearts. Third, when we fail to honor God, we prove that we are fools. Now, we've been talking about this all along. Paul writes in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. In Romans 12, we're going to see the same kind of thing, but it's reversed as wisdom from God. And, And Paul writes, never be wise in your own sight. In other words, don't trust your own wisdom, your own intellect, your feeling that you are something wonderful, And the world needs you and your insight, and you don't need them. Or think of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. He's drawing this constant comparison between the gospel and the so-called wisdom of the wise. What were they trusting in? Their own intellect? Their own understanding? The Greek philosophers were dismissing the gospel as being foolish, Likewise, Luke wrote of the Pharisees that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You see, it's the same attitude. They thought they didn't need help. They resented the teaching of the gospel. They regarded Christ as nothing. Men and women are so proud of themselves. We're so proud of our intellect and wisdom. We think we are superior to all who have ever lived before us, and yet 
as we peel back the layers of our lives, we see our misery, and we recognize our emptiness, and we see our confusion, and it all becomes very plain. Behind all of the bravado and the pride hides uncertainty and fear. The wiser a man or a woman, the more humble they are. It's always the ones, isn't it, who have a little bit of knowledge about a few things that are the absolute worst. Have you ever had to try have you ever had, uh, tried to have a serious discussion about an important and controversial issue with a 22-year-old young man who's armed with a 10-minute Google search to destroy your arguments even though you've worked your entire life and studied something for many years? People who really know things know what they don't know, and so they're quiet about it. But those who only know a little think they know it all. There's nothing more dangerous than a young man with a little bit of money, a little bit of education, no wife, and no trials. He will tell you how to parent your children. He will tell you how to treat your wife. He will tell you how to do your job. He will tell you how to worship God. And Lord, help him. If he's not a Christian, there is no end in sight. He is the very definition of a fool. The Bible uses many terms in describing sinners, but fool is the one the Bible uses most often. Think of Jesus' parable to the rich fool, a boasting young man who thought he was so clever and so wise, but the Lord exposed him as nothing more than a fool. I'm all right. I'm good to go. I'm smarter than everyone else. I worked all season. I stored up all my grain in my barn, and I am good. I'm just going to kick back and relax and watch Netflix all winter long. I'm a smart man. What did the Lord say to him? He said, you're a fool. On this very night, your life will be taken from you. Then what will happen to all of your grain and all of your money and all of your pride? What will you have left to show for it? You see, those who are wise in their own eyes are condemned because they condemn themselves. They are living a lie. They claim to be wise, but how do they live? They live arrogantly. They live proudly. I remember an interview with Richard Dawkins many years ago, and this man has become famous for his supposed atheism. And in this interview, he continued to deny God's existence. It's not possible. He couldn't be there. There is no God. And the interviewer said, if you are so certain there is no God, then what do you believe about the origins of mankind? Where do we come from? And he said that he finds most plausible the idea of life coming from molecules that can be found on the backs of crystals. This is beyond idiotic. It's madness. God cannot exist because I said so, but I will tell you what is true. Complex human life evolved off the back of crystals. I mean, I have to give him credit. At least he has the guts to risk his reputation with such a claim in the first place. But you see, the world is full of darkened hearts who would hear nonsense like that and say, yeah, that's plausible. Plausible? 
To whom does that sound plausible? For, for our next act, we will find plausible the idea that we are all just brains in a vat in some far-off land managed by extraterrestrial beings. It takes the mind of a fool to suggest that God doesn't exist. And in fact, He doesn't exist, and I hate Him. <laughs> and by the way, we all came from crystals. So you see, true wisdom is not judged merely by the number of books we've read or written or can quote or recite or the Google searches we can perform or the insane ideas that we can concoct about our origins, but rather by the way we live, the way we use our knowledge, and ultimately what we do with all of it for the benefit of knowing and worshiping and glorifying God. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world of knowledge and lose his own soul? So how does this foolishness ultimately translate into action? Lastly, when we fail to honor God, we are idolaters. To the natural man, apart from grace and darkened in the heart, Nothing seems more obvious than that it is wise to design your own God than to take what you have been given already. What could be more obviously wise to the smart fool than to make your own God? Think of the advantages. It shows your resourcefulness. It shows your creativity, your intelligence, your moral superiority. Ah, but best of all, it lets you be in control. Nobody will create a God with Ten Commandments. Nobody will create his own God that demands perfection that we are unable to live up to on our own. Nobody will create his own God that tells you to die to yourself and to live to the advantage of others. Nobody is creating a God that insists that following your heart isn't only bad counsel, it will lead directly to suffering and everlasting torment. In the end, making your own God means that you are God. And what could be wiser than the choice to be God? Remember what Satan said to Eve in the garden? God knows that in the day you eat from the forbidden tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the tree, that it was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. They wanted to be little gods. And this is the way it was from the beginning, and this is the way that it still is today. If you want to assume the role of God in governing your life, you will believe that idolatry is the wisest thing that you can do. But Paul is showing us very clearly that it is foolish to create your own God and to be your own God. It is foolish to lean on your own understanding. It is foolish to be led by your own sinful passions and fleshly desires. It is foolish to exchange the glory of God, the glory of our immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Think of that. You think it's more wise to worship a bird 
than to acknowledge the existence of God? Next thing you're going to tell me is that we began on the backs of crystals. Think of the foolishness. God? No, you can keep Him. I worship reptiles. I worship amphibians. I worship fish. You see, Paul is emphasizing the infinite difference between what we are trading away in the all-glorious, all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe for dirty, nasty birds, for trees, for sticks. And notice something in how he writes this. I saw this a few years ago. I learned this from John Piper. He was talking about this, and I think it's a fascinating insight into what Paul is showing us here. Notice, he says, man himself is already, we, we know already from Genesis 1.27, that man is created, how? In the image of God. He's not God, he's created in the image of God. But that is not what the exchange of God gets, is it? We don't get man when we exchange God. No, we get images resembling mortal man. It is an image of man, Right? Well, no, not even that. Look, it's an image resembling mortal man who is himself an image of God. So what is Paul doing here? He's showing how far away from the true God we really get. It's what he always does. He's piling his description. So Paul is showing us that what we trade God away for is a copy of a copy of a copy of God. Do you see it? When you exchange the glory of God, even for man, the greatest thing you can think of yourself, not to mention the animals, you are exchanging God for a copy of a copy of a copy. For the image of God drawn into an image that resembles man. You can have the original Mona Lisa. It is yours. But you think, you know what? I don't want that. I'll just get a postcard in the gift shop. No, you know what? Actually, I'll just have my kid draw it for me. Now, friends, I know that for some of you, all of this sounds like we're going overboard. That I've really jumped ship here, and I'm just coming down hard on people because they don't believe in Christ. But I'm merely reminding all of us what we know inherently is true, but we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Without God, there would be no atheists because there would be no God to conceive of or discuss. And so I hope at the very least you can recognize our inherent tendency to suppress what is true, to attempt to trick ourselves and to attempt to make ourselves look like something other than what we are. But be warned, to not honor Christ is to become futile in our thinking. It is to have our hearts darkened. It is to claim to be wise and yet prove ourselves to be fools. It is to become idolaters. But friend, I want you to know that there is a way 
to set your mind and your heart on what matters in this world, to have the light of your Creator shine brightly in your heart that you might know what true wisdom is, to worship not yourself and not the things of this world, but the One who knows you, the One who made you, the One who sustains you. Don't settle for a copy of a copy of a copy. You can look to Christ and live. You know, the reality is that all that we've looked at this morning is true, not only of you, but of me and everyone else who has ever lived. And yet, God still demands perfection in the fulfillment of His law. And so, what do we do? Well, the Bible tells us, we saw it last week, we are without excuse. We have no hope on our own. So what do we do? Well, God has made a way in the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ fulfilled the law because we couldn't do it. And so He did it on our behalf. Jesus Christ went to the cross and died the death that we absolutely deserve. Because our thinking is futile and our hearts are dark and we are foolish idolaters. And so Christ died in our place that we need not suffer the wrath of God. Jesus went into the grave and took on death. And He died that death and then rose again three days later to conquer that death that you and I need not experience the death of the grave but might simply fall asleep in the Lord and wake up in the arms of Christ. And you too, if you do not know Christ, if you do not love Christ, you too can come to know Jesus Christ by faith and He invites you. He calls on you to come to Him and buy His riches without money. He offers them freely and joyfully to you if you come humbly by faith to Him. And so would you come to Christ? Would you come to know Christ? Would you come to lay down your idolatry? your darkness of heart, and your futility of mind that you might worship the one true and living God.